2006, March 2nd. Today is Lecture 39, The Fate of the Universe, which will begin in just a moment. All right. So welcome to the, the last lecture in this particular series on the nature of the universe and the machinery of night. We want to, we've been at looking at the Big Bang model of the expanding universe all of this week. And we started out the first couple of days looking at what the physics of the Big Bang is and, and what kind of predictions it can make. And yesterday, we decided to take that idea as given and run with it, to go back as far as we could in the cosmic past and ask what were the stages, what was the hot, early, dense portions of the Big Bang like. And we saw how we went from a period at the very beginning called the Planck Epoch, when all the four forces were unified into a single superforce. We went back as far as our physics can go today, maybe even beyond it a little bit, into the physics of the 22nd century, perhaps, to understand what happened in the instances just after the Big Bang. And followed it forward as the universe expanded and cooled, a brief period of inflation that flattened it out and smoothed it out a tremendous amount. And then as the universe cooled, slowly but surely, all the bath of radiation and particles began to freeze out. As all matter, as we began to recognize it, began to emerge. By one millionth of a second, we actually started seeing protons, neutrons, and electrons, things that were the precursors of those, start to appear. By one second, actual matter we'd recognize today has begun to appear. By three minutes, nucleosynthesis had ended, and we had only hydrogen, helium, and light elements like lithium, beryllium, and boron, but no carbon, nothing heavier. For that, the universe has to wait until stars begin to form, and that's not from almost half a billion years after the beginning. We then followed it up through recombination, and the universe was 300,000 years old, and the universe suddenly became transparent. And we look around us today, we see an expanding universe that is old, cold, and very low density. So we want to continue yesterday's story, but we want to now take it from the present into the more speculative future, what we can actually learn about this. So far, everything I've mentioned is motivated by in many ways, direct observation either of the phase itself, in the case of the, of the cosmic background radiation, or from the products of those phases. For example, the amount of matter and antimatter in the current universe, if we can ever determine that with any accuracy, will inform us something about some of those epochs in which the various forces decoupled from each other. We can see the products of cosmic primordial nucleosynthesis. We can see the cosmic background radiation. As we look into the, into, the, into the distance, we are looking into the universe's past. We see the universe's evolution unfolding before our eyes. What we can't do is look into the future observationally. But as we can see, if we understand the physics of the evolving universe, if we understand what it was like in the past, then it is possible observationally to project that knowledge forward into the future and ask how the movie will continue to play. And so that's the basis of today's lecture. This is the way the world will end, the fate of the universe. The key ideas, kind of a long list today, but there's really mostly just words, mostly very wordy. We're going to start by looking at matter-dominated universes, those in which only the matter density is what matters. Those are the simplest to consider. And we're going to see that in a high density, or what I'll call a high omega universe, the amount of matter is sufficient to cause the expansion to stop and then recollapse into something we call the big crunch. If, on the other hand, we're dealing with a low density, low omega, or flat universe, then the expansion will continue forever. The infinite universe will just simply have all of its constituents getting further and further apart. It's already infinite in extent, but now we would just simply spread the contents out. And what we end up is the universe continuing to expand and cool off into something we'll call, for lack of a better word, the big chill. 
Now this is for the simple case of only considering the matter content of the universe. We also have now evidence observationally, from especially from observation of distances of galaxies from supernovae of type 1, that the universe, in fact, is not expanding at a constant rate, but that rate is, in fact, accelerating. And this is taken as evidence for the existence of a significant vacuum energy contribution, which for traditionally we refer to as a cosmological constant. We need to look at and explore what the co consequences are of not only considering the matter density, but the vacuum energy density of the universe combined. And that's going to lead to an absolutely surprising prediction that's only become clear in the last few years that in fact we looks like we live in a flat, accelerating infinite universe. That the expansion rate of the universe is in fact getting faster over time. That we are entering an epoch when gravity is in fact having starting to give way to a vacuum energy force called the cosmological constant. So what is the fate of such an accelerating universe going to be? What does the future hold if our current view of the rate of acceleration of the universe is correct? We're going to see that it's going to expand forever at an ever-increasing rate and the end point is going to be a cold, dark, extremely disordered state. And we're going to show sort of some of the scenarios that have been worked out over the last few years under those circumstances. So today we're going to follow the movie forward. We're going to try to fast forward through that informed by our observations of the current universe and our understanding of the physics of the Big Bang model for the expanding universe and try to get a glimpse of what the future holds for the entire cosmos. We're going to start with the simplest possible model. As I said, the matter content of space and time curves space and time. Therefore, the total matter content of the universe determines the total space-time curvature. We quantified this in terms of the density parameter omega. The choice of the symbol omega may have been accidental, maybe not. I've never been able to find out the real origins of it, but for those of you who may be acquainted with the expression alpha and omega, a beginning and an end, Perhaps there was sort of a little bit of um, humor involved, dark humor at that, in picking the symbol omega for the density of the universe because this density, at least in the simple matter-dominated case, determines the end of the universe. So it's a somewhat appropriate symbol. We're only going to consider matter density. We're going to ignore the energy density of the universe for the moment. In this case, if we have a high-density universe, and I'll define high-density as meaning that the average density of matter of all forms is greater than the critical density. The critical density, you'll remember, is the density required to keep the curvature of the of space exactly flat, like a sheet of Euclidean paper. If you're above the critical density, omega naught of greater than 1, there's enough matter that all the other matter calling to all the other matter through the agency of space-time begins to slow the expansion, eventually causing that expansion to stop. Now, if you stop the expansion, then the gravitation of all the matter in the universe will actually cause the universe to start contracting again. So we end up with a spherical geometry in which the universe is finite yet unbounded. If I go in any direction, I could in principle come back to where I started again if I had long enough. In fact, I don't have long enough. And the universe will actually expand to some maximum size, stop, and then recollapse again, if you will, reversing the movie into the Big Bang and therefore growing smaller, denser, and hotter with time as the universe compresses. The temperature would heat up, that matter would eventually reach the point that the universe would become opaque and all the gas would be ionized. We'd reach the point where the energy would reach the binding energy of atoms and the binding energy of nuclei, and we'd eventually see all the matter melt as the temperature rises to billions of degrees, and it would all go back into 
Well, whatever state it goes into when all the four forces reunify again. Rather than follow that evolution backwards, we'll simply give it a name. We'll call it from the Big Bang back to the Big Crunch. Everything goes back to where it came from, although it's been somewhere before, so it really won't be exactly the same. It won't be like running the movie forward. That's what would happen if we had enough matter to slow the expansion of the universe and pull space and time back down in upon itself. The other end of the spectrum is what if I have a low-density universe or I have a flat universe. Low-density means omega naught less than 1. Flat means omega naught equals 1. In those cases, the universe is infinite in extent and expands out forever. If omega naught is a little bit less than 1, little less than one the universe will in fact sort of go into a coasting phase and slow down, it will slowly decelerate because I expect all the matter to pull itself onto each other. What's going to happen is as the universe continues to expand, it gets larger, lower density, and it continues to cool off. Right now, if you want to measure the temperature of the universe by its radiation field, it's about 3 degrees Kelvin, 3 degrees above absolute zero. If I expanded another same amount, say a factor of 1,000 in effective redshift, the temperature would then be 3 millikelvin. Another factor of 1,000 later, it would be 3 microkelvin, then 3 nanokelvin, and so on and so forth, continuing to cool and fade out. We call this state, again, for lack of a better word, the Big Bang followed by the Big Chill. The universe never folds back upon itself. It simply expands out forever, basically vanishing. If you want to turn that into a motto, you can say, density is destiny in a matter-dominated universe. You can write this onto a t-shirt or a ball cap or a coffee cup or anything like that. My wife, who wrote a cosmology textbook, actually has a little teddy bear with a density is destiny sweater on it that she had made up after the book got published. The, um, it's a very simple way of looking at the universe. We simply have to, to learn the future of the universe. All I have to do is go out and measure the matter density. Whether that matter density relative to the critical density is bigger than 1, less than 1, or right exactly equal to 1, tells me what the future evolution of the universe is going to be. This in a matter-dominated universe, the future is governed by the effects of gravity, of matter calling to other matter through curved space-time. So this is kind of the picture we get. If you wanted to make a cartoon of the universe from the past to the present, so time runs vertically, and I squash the whole universe down into just a little tiny bit here in this cartoon, I, in an omega matter Omega not greater than one universe, we have a big crunch universe, so we go from the Big Bang, we expand to a maximum size, cooling off, we reach a minimum temperature and a maximum size, but stop expanding at this instant, and then at th in the other half of the history of the universe, the universe would begin to heat up as it collapses, get smaller, and eventually go into a big crunch. If I'm in this phase, before the end of expansion, I see a redshift in all directions, Afterwards, I would expect to see a blue shift. I would see a systematic blue shift. I'd turn the sign of the Hubble constant around. If omega naught is less than 1, the expansion goes out, but then it begins to decelerate. It slows down. It's, not, it's faster in the past, slower in the future, but because we're always getting big, we will always cool off. And finally, we get to this universe, which is a coasting universe in which the expansion rate is a constant for all cosmic time. It represents a kind of extreme of expansion of the universe. But again, it gets old and low density and cold forever and just simply continues off the top of the page. So what is the matter density? 
This is something we can actually measure. It's not easy to measure. It's fairly challenging to do so. It's taken us about 70 years to get a reasonable number, but it can be done. So let's do a simple assay of the total matter content of the universe that we see around us today. The first thing we want to assay is let's just start with the same stuff we're made of, right? Baryonic matter. This is stars and gas, people, planets, all that kind of stuff. Baryonic matter is matter made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. The electrons are just along for the ride. The baryons are really the protons and neutrons. If you measure up all the galaxies we can see in the deep fields, you measure up the masses of all the stars that we can see, you do an assay of the gas content of the universe, be it cold hydrogen gas to extremely hot X-ray emitting gas. So I use everything from radio telescopes to X-ray telescopes to the Hubble Space Telescope, massive ground-based surveys run the numbers through, and what I get is the best estimate for the matter density, of the, the contribution to the total density parameter just from the baryons alone, from the stars and gas, is 0 0.04 plus or minus 0 0.01. That's only 4% of the critical density. Remember, critical density would be omega of 1. So what we look at is certainly baryons, the stuff we think the universe is made of, is only 4% of the critical density with a margin of error of about 1%. Of that 4%, the contribution from stars is 0.4%. So even though when we look out into the universe with our eyes or our telescopes and we see stars, stars are not the dominant form, the dominant organization of baryonic matter in the universe. In fact, most of the baryonic matter in the universe seems to be in the form of very hot gas, a small fraction of cold gas, and then a small fraction of stars. So the universe still has a lot of raw material to form stars from. There's still a lot of places for the baryons to go, but they haven't all gone into stars. So the form of matter that's associated with stars, like planets and us, is already a minority of the constituents of the universe. Another contributor is actually photons. Photons, Einstein tells us, have an equivalent mass. Energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. So I can add up the cosmic background radiation. The energy density from that cosmic background radiation acts as a kind of matter. It acts as a, a source of density and a source of gravitation of sorts. It's small, though. The contribution to the cosmological, cons, co cosmological density parameter from radiation, almost all of it in the cosmic background radiation, starlight's a minor contributor, is 0. 0.00005. So five one hundred thousandths of the critical density. So the photons aren't helping us out either. There is, however, another form of matter, which I really have only just barely spoken of in this class, and which is going to be the topic of one of next week's lectures of out in the frontiers of astrophysics. That's the subject of dark matter. If I look at the, the orbits of stars and galaxies, if I look at the orbits of galaxies around the center of masses of clusters of galaxies, what I find is the starlight is not accounting for all the mass, nor is all the hot X-ray gas or cold atomic gas accounting for all the mass responsible for the gravity. There's an additional component of mass, which because it does not emit light of any kind, is called dark matter. We'll say a little bit more about dark matter next week in detail, but if you assay up the dark matter, its contribution is huge. Omega, the contribution to omega from dark matter is 26% of the critical density. In fact, if you look at these numbers, all matter of all baryons, the stuff we're made of, is only 4% the critical density. That's more than a factor of six times more matter is in the form of dark matter than in the form of stuff we're made of. 
And this dark matter is not made of dark baryons. It's made of something else. Maybe it's some kind of exotic particles. Maybe some kind of black holes. It's really difficult to say what it is. So if I take all of these numbers and add them all together, I make a number called omega matter. It's the contribution to the cosmic density parameter due just to all forms of matter, baryons, radiation, and dark matter. And I get a number between 0.2 and 0.4 when I take into account all the imprecisions of these measurements. In other words, omega matter is 0.3 plus or minus 0.1. This is less than 1. So what does this mean to us? Well, let's assume the universe is matter dominated. What the statement matter dominated means is that omega naught is just simply equal to omega matter. All the matter I can see, either I see it directly with light or I see its presence through gravity, through the orbits of objects moving in the influence of its gravity field, I add up all that stuff and I only get 0.2 to 0.4. Well, that's just plain less than one. In fact, it's about three times a factor of three or more less than one. If omega naught is less than one, that means we live in a universe in which there is too little matter to stop the expansion of the universe. There's just enough matter to actually slow it down, but not enough to stop it. So what we get is the universe has a negative hyperbolic geometry. It's an infinite, hyperbolic, ever-expanding universe. But because there's a little bit of matter in there, it's enough to actually cause that expansion to slow down over cosmic time. So if I look into the cosmic past, I should expect to see a faster expansion rate Whereas if I look into the future, I would expect, if I can't look in the future, but I expect is in the future, the cosmic expansion will slow down. So the way I would test this is look in the past and see if galaxies were expanding apart faster in the past. In the past really means at great distances. But the expectation from this is if matter-dominated universe is the right way to describe the universe, then the universe should be infinite, hyperbolic in, in, in geometry, neither flat nor spherical, but sort of an open hyperbolic curve. Okay, a hyperbolic curve in, three in four dimensions, but you know, a hyperbolic curve nonetheless. It will expand forever at an ever-decreasing rate. That's if matter-dominated is the only thing going on. But is the universe, in fact, matter-dominated? Now I want to bring into play the cosmological constant. Now, for years, people thought the cosmological constant must have been zero. The cosmological constant was, of course, Einstein's greatest blunder. It was introduced to make the equations of general relativity static, to stop the universe from expanding or contracting. But it failed, and it failed because it really made the universe unstable. So what would really happen if I did introduce a cosmological constant? Well, the way we choose to introduce the cosmological constant is to say that the cosmic density parameter, omega naught, is not just omega matter, as it would be in the case of a matter-dominated universe, but omega matter plus an omega lambda. So I basically introduce the cosmological constant by saying, what is its impact on this density parameter? So I say that the total density parameter is the density of matter and energy, and omega lambda is a density of the vacuum energy. When I wrote down omega matter, I included energy in the form of photons. But what if there's a different form of energy? Most people call it the vacuum energy. Some people call it dark energy. It's something else. Could be a scalar field of particle physics. Could be all kinds of things. We'll talk a little bit about that next week when we talk about dark matter and dark energy. 
These are all of a piece. Maybe the form of energy we're most familiar with, photons, is not the dominant form of energy in the universe. Maybe there's something else. We call it dark energy or vacuum energy. The bottom line here, however, is that if I introduce a non-zero lambda, meaning if, if, if lambda was zero, omega lambda would be zero, and I'd be back to a matter-dominated universe. But if I introduce lambda, now density is no longer obviously the density. Oh, boy. Density is no longer destiny because the effect of omega lambda is to add an extra push to the universe. Is that push enough to actually dominate the future of the universe? Or is it just simply an irritant? It just slows things down a little bit if it wasn't otherwise there. So what does omega lambda actually do to a cosmological theory? Well, if omega lambda is equal to zero, it's a matter-dominated universe. Matter will slow down the expansion. Even if you have only a little bit of matter, that little bit is enough to slow you down. It's only when you have absolutely no matter and things are perfectly flat that you would get essentially a you know, flat and completely empty that you get a perfectly coasting universe. So what you expect to see is if omega lambda is zero, I look into the past, which means I look at galaxies at great distance, and I measure the Hubble constant back then, I measure the rate of expansion of the universe, and I would expect to see that those galaxies, in fact, have larger recession velocities than I would have expected for a simple steady expansion, meaning the universe was expanding faster, their recession velocity should be bigger. As I come to closer and closer galaxies, I'm coming to shorter and shorter cosmic time. I'm looking back for less far in the future, in the, less far into the past, and so I'll see the expansion rate today. Remember, the Hubble constant measures the expansion rate today, but if I look at distant galaxies, what was the Hubble constant, what was the rate of expansion then? If I live in a matter-dominated universe, I expect that rate to be faster because the universe will have slowed since the distant past to the present day. What if omega lambda is non-zero? What if omega lambda is large? Then what omega lambda does is it acts like kind of a pressure. It actually adds an additional inflation to the universe. Now, it's not inflation like the hyperinflation that we got when we had the electroweak decoupling in the early universe at 10 to the minus 36 seconds. This is much more gentle. And in fact, it may not even dominate until later times because it's extremely weak. But what it does is it acts like a little extra pressure pushing on the universe, pushing the galaxies apart. Remember that what gravity wants to do is it wants to pull the galaxies together, but it's trying to pull those galaxies together against the expansion of space from between the galaxies. What omega lambda does is it actually helps the expansion by trying to push the galaxies apart. So I get an interesting little tug of war, like a pressure. In fact, it appears in the equations of the physics of the expanding universe like a gas pressure term. That's why it's so simple to deal with mathematically and physically. So what I would expect is if omega lambda is large enough to have an impact, the expansion will actually begin to accelerate with time. It will actually get faster as the universe ages. In that case, I expect that as I go into the past, the expansion rate was slower because it's moving faster now. So when I look at very distant galaxies, when I look into the distant past, I should see those galaxies have smaller recession speeds compared to the present day. So this is very nice, because what this means is I've actually got a test of what omega lambda is, or the, or the presence of an omega lambda. I don't know what the physics of omega lambda is. I don't know if it's a dark energy. I don't know if it's cosmological constant. I don't know if it's some kind of funky particle physics scalar field. But I can tell whether something like it is present. 
whether it's causing the universe to accelerate. And the test is, I make a Hubble diagram. I make this plot of the recession velocity as a function of distance going into the very distant universe. But to go into the very distant universe, I'm going to need a good distance indicator that isn't the Hubble constant. I need to have a good long-range luminosity distance indicator. So here's what the goal is. Draw a, a simple Hubble diagram. Distance, recession velocity. Recession velocity isn't observable. Distance in principle isn't observable, probably a luminosity distance. Nearby is in the corner, so nearby in slow recession. Distant, further away, the faster the apparent recession. If the universe was expanding at a completely constant steady rate, it would be this yellow diagonal line going off into the, into the past. It would follow a simple Hubble law. Recession velocity is equal to distance times a constant, the Hubble constant. However, let's pick, a, if it's accelerating in the past, if the universe is accelerating, then I expect it to be moving slower in the past. If it's decelerating, I expect it to be moving faster in the past. Notice that its recession velocity is along the horizontal axis. So if I draw this vertical line here at a constant distance, in a steady universe, a galaxy should be there. So let's say this is out at 300 megaparsecs. A galaxy at 300 megaparsecs in a steady universe will be there. If the universe was moving slower in the past, because recession velocity gets slower to the left, I would expect it to be here on the red curve. At 300 megaparsecs at the same distance, I would expect a slower recession speed than I would have projected from the current expansion. Similarly, if the universe was decelerating, if it was slowing down from the past to the present, then I would expect that as I looked at a galaxy 300 megaparsecs out, its expansion rate is faster because it will have slowed down to the present day. And so I expect the points in the galaxies to be on this green curve. So the yellow curve is simply taking the local Hubble expansion and projecting it outwards as a constant. And then what I want to do is look out into the distant, distance far enough that I'm looking far enough into the past that I become sensitive to the acceleration or deceleration, which means I need an independent way of measuring distances that's not using the Hubble constant. I need a really good, super long-range distance indicator, a super long-range standard candle. Now, the problem is this is way out there. This is getting up to recession velocities approaching many tens of thousands of kilometers a second. We're talking about many hundreds of parsecs out. It's really going to be hard, hundreds of megaparsecs out. It's hard to do. Turns out we do have such a superluminosity candle. And that's going to be type 1a supernovae. Type 1a supernovae are white dwarf stars in a binary system which are orbiting very close to their parent neighbor. Their parent neighbor is a normal star. And maybe some matter is slowly dribbling onto the white dwarf. It's being pulled off by the tides from the strong gravity of the white dwarf. Eventually, that matter will accumulate to the point that the mass exceeds the Chandrasekhar mass. And the little white dwarf can no longer hold itself up by degeneracy pressure against gravity, and it begins to catastrophically collapse. That catastrophic collapse triggers an off-centered thermonuclear detonation, and the white dwarf disrupts in what's called a type 1a supernova explosion because they all come with a similar composition, nearly pure carbon and oxygen, and they all detonate at a mass of about 1.4 solar masses. They're all going to have approximately the same total energy of explosion. That means the same total luminosity, 
We can calibrate this by looking for type 1a supernovae in galaxies for which I have Cepheid distances, Tully-Fisher distances, all those other distances I use for galaxies. The beauty of type 1a's is they're found in both spirals and ellipticals. In fact, they're part of an old POP2 population. So I actually can find them to great cosmic distances. They're extremely luminous. I can see them so far away. Here's one over here on the right where it's so far away I don't even see the galaxy it lives in until I take a deeper exposure. So these are pictures with the Hubble Space Telescope showing these little bright knots of light. There's the galaxy it lives in. There's a single white dwarf detonating. It's as bright as the entire galaxy it resides in for the instance of the explosion. They are absolutely ideal standard candles. We can see them a very long ways away. They have an extremely characteristic spectrum, so I can tell them apart from just simply a massive star explosion, a so-called type 2 supernova. And in fact, there are ongoing studies to calibrate the type 1a distance relationship, but already we've begun to reach out into the depths of cosmic space with this. This is the results of some of these surveys. This is a little bit older diagram, but it's a very clear one. The top shows the luminosity distance for a whole bunch of type 1a supernovae. And this shows the recession velocity expressed as a redshift. So c times the redshift is the recession velocity. So these things are getting out to recession velocities approaching the speed of light. That's OK, because it's not the objects moving. It's how fast the space is expanding between them. And this is what the Hubble diagram looks like. And you say, oh, well, gee, professor, that just looks like a straight line. So let's take the straight line away and look at the difference between a straight line model with omega matter of 0.3, about what we see is omega matter of 0.3 plus or minus 0.1, and no cosmological constant, omega lambda zero. So this is a model of omega naught equals omega matter. And then all of a sudden I see as I go close by, all the data points kind of cluster about the red line. But then when I go away, oh, look the galaxies are moving slower at a long range. In other words, they're not consistent with a nearly steady expansion rate. They're consistent with the universe having been expanding more slowly. And in fact, this upper line here that's drawn through it, this little black line, that does go through the cloud of data points, is consistent with omega lambda not zero, but omega lambda being 0.7 two and a half times larger than the matter contribution for all forms of matter, including dark matter, combined. This was a tremendous surprise. Before, about five or ten years ago, if anyone did a cosmology model with a non-zero omega lambda, it would have been considered to be, oh, kind of a nifty exercise, but otherwise an utter impossibility. And it took everybody by surprise. Lambda is not zero. Einstein wasn't insane. The universe is accelerating. We live in an accelerating, infinite, flat universe. Supernova type 1a results combined with a series of constraints from observations of the cosmic background radiation. I mean, after all, we don't believe just one distance indicator. We try all kinds of different ways of looking at the implications of having an omega lambda zero, not omega lambda term non-zero. When we combine all those constraints, which I'm just going to gloss over for this lecture because it's very technical, the bottom line is, is I measure omega matter. I do an assay of all the matter in the universe by looking at the light and looking at the gravity. And I come up with a matter number of omega matter is about 0.3 plus or minus 0.1. It's about 30% the critical density, 30% what I need to make the universe flat. If I look at the, dec- the acceleration of the universe, the fact that in the distant past, galaxies were moving slower than they are today due to the expansion of the universe, 
I come to the surprising number that omega lambda is consistent with 0.7 plus or minus 0.1. Omega naught, the density parameter of the universe, is omega matter plus omega lambda. It's one. It's not under one, it's not over one, it's that magic number, it's flat. This one's surprising, because this is exactly what inflation predicted. For a long time, people thought when the universe inflated at electroweak decoupling, that that couldn't possibly be right, because we know omega is only 0.3. But once we discovered that omega was actually one, because we didn't include a large, surprisingly large, cosmological constant, all of a sudden now, inflation is no longer disallowed. Inflation has to explain why. It's not 1.1, not 0.9. It's about one, about flat. So all of a sudden, we've learned something about the first instances of the Big Bang from looking at the actual matter and energy content of the universe. So let's take this at face value. What we live in is a spatially flat omega and naught equals one accelerating omega lambda is greater than zero, infinite universe. Flat and infinite is already given by omega naught of one, but the fact that omega naught is one because omega lambda is large means that that universe is flat and accelerating. So if I draw that cartoon from before, we go from the Big Bang, the universe in fact is not only getting bigger, it's getting bigger faster as it ages, which means it's cooling faster as it ages. So we live in a spatially flat, accelerating, infinite universe. What does that mean? Let's let's just take this at face value. It 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 used to be a somewhat controversial observation. But surprisingly, in the last couple of years, the controversy has virtually vanished. Now the arguments are not over whether the the universe is accelerating, but by how much. It was an extremely resisted idea about five, ten years ago, but now it's like, the data can't be ignored anymore. This is a good example of how science works. Right? This was an idea, omega lambda equals zero, was almost a, an article of faith among some people. It was held to be an impossibility. Nobody could explain it. When the idea first came out, people were highly resistant to it. They had a lot of work and effort invested in omega lambda equals zero universes. But what's turned people around is the data is speaking loud and clear that the universe is accelerating. Unless we're doing something phenomenally stupid. And so since we always have that possibility, people are checking the numbers constantly. It's a huge effort. But so far, it's stood up. So for the rest of the lecture, let's take that result at face value. Let's accept an accelerating universe. It took me a while to accept it, because I really didn't want to think that was right. So it can't be right. But well, the data say it is. You've got to change your mind when the data's right. I still haven't found a way to make the data wrong. So what would the present and future of the universe be in an accelerating universe? Well, in general, as the universe expands, in an accelerating universe, it will continue to expand at an ever-increasing rate, which means galaxies are getting further apart now. They're going to get even further apart faster from each other in the distant future. The space between the galaxies is widening. Remember, the galaxies themselves are not moving through space. It's space expanding out from underneath them, just like the spots on the balloon move apart, not because they're migrating across the surface of the balloon, but because the whole fabric of the balloon is inflating. So the universe is going to continue to inflate. As it inflates, it's going to get lower density. As it gets lower density, it's going to cool off. But because that expansion rate is accelerating, the cool off is going to get faster and faster and faster.
faster over time. So the details of what this future universe is going to look like requires us to now dip back into everything we've talked about for the last nine weeks. We have to ask things about stellar evolution, the nature of gravity, quantum mechanics, which we really haven't talked about, but which actually is going to start coming into play. Gravity is going to start meaning less and less to a super-expanding universe. We saw that one of the things that was neat about yesterday's lecture was that we saw that after recombination, gravity got its turn. Gravity caused matter to suddenly coalesce into stars and galaxies and clusters and superclusters and planets and people. But what happens now in the distant future is we're going to see gravity lose its grip on the universe and have all the matter torn away from each other. Let's follow it through. Now, we're just going to sort of go through this kind of quick. The details are not important per se, for, for, but certainly the big picture is. We live 14 billion years after the Big Bang. We live in the epoch of star formation. If I look at the sun, if I look at the stars around me, the stars are very rich in metals, and even more metals are being made to this day by supernova explosions, which forge heavy metals inside of their interiors and spew them out through these explosions into the interstellar medium out of which the next generation of stars form. Each generation of stars that form is going to incorporate those metals, and this time with just a little bit less hydrogen, because some of that hydrogen has been forged into metals, into heavy elements. Now, as each generation of stars is formed, however, remember that stars don't disrupt at the end of their lives. The sun, which starts out with one solar mass, is going to end up as a 0.45 solar mass white dwarf. So almost half of the mass of the sun is going to be locked in a white dwarf, while the other half is sloughed off into maybe a weak planetary nebula at the end of its 12 billion odd years of life. So six, seven billion years from now, when the sun its core becomes a white dwarf and its envelope becomes a, a, a planetary nebula very briefly, only about half of its mass is going to go back into the interstellar medium to form new stars, but the other half is going to be locked in the center as a white dwarf. More massive stars will lock up their mass as neutron stars. Even more massive stars will lock them up as black holes. So slowly but surely, some of the gas in the universe is lost to the universe because it's locked away in stellar remnants. It's no longer available to make new stars. So it's not just simply a case of infinite recycling. Every time you go around the house, if you will, gravity gets its cut. So it's just like money moving around a casino. You may think you're coming out ahead, but in fact the casino is taking its cut every time the money goes round. In the universe, gravity takes its cut. Every time you make a star, you leave something behind in a remnant which means at some point in the distant future, you're going to run out of gas. When does that occur? Well, if you can just simply project forward the rates of star formation, the rate at which matter is being locked up in successive remnants, we've got a ways to go. When the universe is ten, approximately a trillion years old, we're only 14 billion years now, so when we get to a trillion years old, successively more and more matter has been locked up in stellar remnants, which is depleting the free gas reserves. When I get up to about a trillion years, the gas reserves will drop to the point that I can no longer make stars. The gas will be so thin and so spread out, I can't gather enough of it together to make a molecular cloud, and from that molecular cloud make the next generation of stars. The nuclear fuel of the universe will simply be exhausted. The only thing I'm going to be left with are red dwarfs, but even red dwarfs will burn out after a couple trillion years. So it doesn't take too long before even the red dwarfs begin to turn into white dwarfs, 
And what little gas they puff off is just not enough to make any difference. What matter is left is now locked away into white dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes. So what's going to happen after a trillion years when the nuclear fuel is gone, the lights are going to begin to go out in the sky. The stars are going to wink out one by one as they run out of hydrogen to burn into helium, to shine into the night. So what we're going to see is after a trillion years, maybe 10 trillion years, the universe will begin to fade. The stars will begin to all go out. Now, we have a lot of time to work with. You might say we have all the time in the universe. So let's run the clock even further forward. At 10 to the 17 years, a number so big I even stopped bothering to give names like billion and trillion. As stars move around within a galaxy, they slowly but surely tweak and perturb each other. Sometimes they come close, sometimes they come far away. These encounters are extremely rare. There's probably maybe one or two in close encounters with a st another star during the entire course of the sun's last four and a half billion years. But I got a lot more than four and a half billion years to work with. So by 10 to the 17 years, the number of encounters with stars, the possibility of a close encounter, like another star passing to within the orbit of the Earth from our sun, becomes probable. It's improbable now, but if I have 10 to the 17 years to wait, it will happen. And so what this will do is the gravitational perturbation from those interactions will basically rip any planetary system apart. It will eject the planets, either throwing them into their parent stars or throwing them out into the depths of space. So what I expect is wide binaries will slowly become close binaries. Star the sun will eventually cap be captured by another star or maybe even a pair of stars. And some fraction of those stars will begin to form binaries. They will get tighter and tighter until the two stars, which are now stellar remnants, in fact, these are all star systems, which, by the way, are all white dwarfs, neutron stars, or black holes. They're not normal stars anymore, except for maybe one or you know, even 10 to 17, not even, the, not even the red dwarfs are there. These binary stars, which I really should say binary stellar remnants, will begin to coalesce into single remnants, and those single remnants will eventually get big enough to become black holes. After 10 to the 27 years, if I run the clock forward, the stellar remnants within a galaxy will begin to act with each, interact with each other, and the galaxies themselves, all by themselves, will begin to dissolve. Every now and then, an encounter between stars will be sufficiently energetic to flip one of the stars completely out of the galaxy. It will accelerate it to beyond the escape speed of the galaxy. This is not a crazy idea. We see hypervelocity stars, only a handful in our own galaxy that are moving at 800 to 1,000 kilometers a second. They're going to escape the galaxy and head into intergalactic space. They're rare now because the galaxy is only 10, 12 billion years old. When you have 10 to the 27 years to work with, it will become not an exception, but the rule. So something like 90% of a star's galaxy stars will be ejected by the time the universe is 10 to the 27 years old. The remaining 10% if you're ejecting a star, you've got to take energy away, will move and migrate to the center, where there's a gigantic, voracious, supermassive black hole waiting for those, not really stars, but remnants to coalesce with. So 90% of the galaxies will, will have their black holes, neutron stars, and white dwarfs spattered into intergalactic space. The remaining 10% will coalesce with the central supermassive black hole, and the universe will no longer have galaxies. The galaxies will be nothing more than free-floating supermassive black holes with a handful of stellar remnants surrounding them. And in between intergalactic space will be rogue white dwarfs, neutron stars, and little tiny stellar mass black holes.
The galaxies will literally dissolve into the darkness. At 10 to the 32 years, we start getting into the realm of wacky quantum mechanics. Some particle models predict that protons, the very stuff of matter, are not intrinsically stable. And if you waited around and put a jar full of protons in the room, 10 to the 32 years later, half of those protons would turn into, well, they'd radioactively decay into something else. Electrons, positrons, and neutrinos, the simplest forms of matter we know of. So all the matter that's not inside black holes will actually start coming apart. The protons, the neutrons, the atomic nuclei remaining will begin to vanish. They'll begin to dissolve quantum mechanically. Current experimental limits place this to be 10 to the 32 years, could be as high as 10 to the 35 years. That's unimaginably long, but we have infinity to work with. After 10 to the 67 years, the remaining stellar mass black holes will actually begin to evaporate. Space will be cold enough that Hawking radiation will begin to erode the black holes, emitting particles and photons. Those particles and photons will head out into the universe and themselves begin to decay into electrons, positrons, neutrinos, and photons. By 10 to the 100 years, the universe is old enough for supermassive black holes to begin to evaporate. So even gravitationally bound matter will lose. Gravity will ultimately lose the battle of the universe. Gravity will cease to be even relevant. And the universe will simply end as a big chill. The black holes will be gone. The universe will continue to cool off towards absolute zero. Only matter existing will be a thin gas of electrons, positrons, and neutrinos, and increasingly redshifted photons. The end is cold, dark, and disordered. Robert Frost, probably without knowing it, in the 1920s contemplated the end of the world by saying, some say the world will end in fire and some say in ice. What I've tasted of desire I hold with those who favor fire, but if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction ice is also great and would suffice. But I'll give the last word to T.S. Eliot. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. See you all tomorrow.